Settle in for some smooth jams. <laughs> so, interesting new rules for this week. Uh, no typing on keyboards while we're talking. Uh, no mouse clicks. We're going to go back to basics. Just to talking. Let all the, leave all the tech out of the way. Yeah, so just uh, basically go back to where we started. That makes a lot of sense. That's what I love the most, I think. I have a sexy morning voice today. Yeah, what's going on, man? You sound like uh, you're about two or three notes lower than usual, and you have a little bit of gruff. Um, it's like your beard grew a little bit or something. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm targeting the female section of our audience today. <laughs> <laughs> or I just or I just woke up. What time did you uh, get home last night? Uh, I think about midnight, but then I was up till about three editing. So, holy cow, you got home really fast. Yeah, Uber's uh pretty accurate i got I, a strange experience though my uber was a truck like an actual truck truck like a pickup truck well like one of the bigger trucks i wouldn't say a pickup truck but you know like a silverado is what it was oh wow it was a strange experience but they had that back cab that was kind of huge so i got i can see why they uber drive i can't imagine that the gas mileage on that is you equals out to the money that they're making in fees. Yeah, that seems that seems counterproductive. Um, I mean, I, I imagine the gas from uh, Sarah's to your house was probably what three or four bucks at least per gallon. So, right, huh, interesting. Uh, that is a strange choice. Maybe they're just bored. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, as I just woke up, you're gonna have to take the lead a little bit here because uh, <laughs> I need to kick into gear a little bit. So, what do you want to talk about, my friend? I, I have a, kind of a similar situation, except uh, I have a, a start, stop, start, stop situation. So, I woke up at uh, 8.30 because uh, Crystal had to go um, handle errands and do some stuff this morning. Um, so, I woke up with her, and then I begrudgingly tried to stay awake and went back to sleep again, which was probably the worst thing I could have done. Um, so, I slept for 45 of the most strange minutes I've, I've ever slept. I've never really napped or uh, dreamt much when I've napped, but um, today I had the craziest fever dream nap I've ever had in my life. <laughs> That's funny. That's exactly what I was going to say. When you said strange 45 minutes, I was going to say fever dream. Yeah, basically. because well, And that's not even entirely inaccurate because it's just... Right, for anyone who, who isn't living in the Bay Area who's listening to this uh, podcast, the Bay Area has been up, just oppressively hot for the last week. And um, today it's a little bit cooler, but it's it's no exception. It's still pretty warm. So I was sweating in bed, and I was literally dreaming about being chased across the space station by a whole bunch of uh, aliens um, for the for the initiated xenomorphs, which were the aliens from the Alien series uh, with uh, you know Giger and and Mr. Ridley Scott and the rest of those guys. I mean, I was terrified running through the space station, trying not to get myself killed. Sounds like you have the start of a decent fan fiction. Yeah, I actually, uh, it's it's interesting because the, there's a second part of the dream in which I get rescued by 
a race of aliens that's apparently hunting these things. So it's basically the opposite of Predator in a way, um, in that they're not hunting for trophies, but they made it their mission in the universe to track down and kill all xenomorphs. So it's kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it all actually ended up working out really well. Like in, in, you know, from a narrative perspective, the story was really interesting. Um, from a first person, holy crap, I don't want to die perspective. It was absolutely terrifying. I think uh, I've had decent luck with using dreams to uh, dreams as fodder for writing. That last uh, one of those last short stories I did surfacing was based off of a dream that I had when I was sick. Uh, you really, I mean, I hope you have that thing um, up somewhere because I'd really, I'd really like that to be included in in the user or the, the the show notes this week. Like you have some great short fiction that. Um, I think the world needs to read that. That one's one of my particular favorites. I'm not saying something considering how much how much I like your writing in general. Never thought about that. Maybe I'll put it. I'll put it on the blog on my website. Yeah, I was I was actually thinking about you know your your epiphany with your vlog kind of um, sparked a little bit of of thought in my mind too. Is that you know considering how much of this podcast is you and I, there's very little footprint of you and I in the show notes or in the podcast itself when it comes to what we're doing and how we're doing it. So right. You know, I think that I think that, you know, anyone, well, at least our friends, I know, you know, Brandon was talking about the, the vlog last night because he, he listened to or I'm sorry, the podcast last night because he'd listened to a few episodes and he was saying that it's it's us, but it's it's more about what we're doing than who we are, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And he said he'd like to see more of us because he thinks that our personalities are what what went through when it comes to the, the, the podcast itself. That must be my my week lesson, <laughs> the, the lesson of the week. Because yeah. uh, for those who listen to the podcast but don't watch my vlog, that was the epiphany I had on the vlog this week was that people keep asking me more about me and I keep giving them more of everything else and I'm not <laughs> listening to people. Uh, I, I agree. I think, I think what people maybe don't understand is there's a certain reticence on the part of a creator in a forum like a podcast or a vlog or something that's not um, completely solely just, you know, writing. Obviously you can only provide something that's hundred percent you when you're putting out writing, but in other forms like that, uh, like this, there's a certain reticence because of the appearance of ego. You don't want to plug yourself too much because then you're afraid that people are going to take on the opinion that maybe you're full of yourself. And I guess that's why you have to rely on people asking you for more of that because you don't know. And you're always, it's always better to provide less in that way than to be the guy who gives too much. Like, that's always like, check this out, check this out, check this out. That gets a little annoying too. Yeah. And there's something to be said for maintaining the the air of mystery about it too. Um, in the sense that, you know, I remember when I was, God, this was, it feels like a lifetime ago, but I managed a band at some point. And I feel like when we were at our most successful was when, um, you know, we'd had this long discussion about, you know, they, they were really big on fan interaction and they were really big on, on making sure that they hung out after shows and talked to people and, you know, got basically um, allowed people to get to know them as people and not just a band. Um, and they were doing relatively well, but we did an experiment where we kind of pulled back, I mean, pulled, pulled down the curtain a little bit. And we made them a little bit more mysterious, not really purposefully, but it was just, you know, because of the, the, the amount of, 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 of 
fan interaction they had, it was just every show was just exhausting. You know, they had their sound check, they then had the show itself, and then they had, you know, at least an hour or two's worth of um, of meet and greet after the fact. And we we ultimately wanted to do it both as a way to increase, um, you know, the air of mystery around the band as well as to decrease the amount of work that was going into every show. Um, because when they were thinking about going on tour, obviously you can't do that for every single show because you have to pack up and leave for the next city pretty much right after you're done. So as an experiment, we decided to to drop the curtain a little bit and kind of made it so that only, you know, a limited amount of interaction was was it was taking place after the shows, and that tremendously helped their popularity. Strangely, so it's interesting. I mean, it's I know it kind of flies in the face of what we're talking about, but I think that there's a little bit of of, of balance when it comes to you know, who you are in the art versus who people think you are. Um, and I think that in, in the respect of your vlog, for example, I think, you know, right now a lot of people have speculation and, and, and assumptions about what your life is, but they actually want to know what your life really is. At least I know for me as, as a person who views your vlog, that's very important to, to me taking part in the, it feels like I'm, I'm watching your life um, versus figuring out who you are as a person. You know what I mean? And I feel like to a certain degree, these are things that I should know, because I remember, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I remember younger, when I was younger, looking at things, reading interviews by people that I was interested in, um, not that obviously that I'm on the level of these people that I'm talking about, but I remember when you would read a bad interview where somebody didn't give you enough meat, it was the most frustrating thing ever. And then, you know, like, for example, like, uh, an interviewer gives somebody a good question that has a, like, uh, has a lot of rope space, you know, like, what are your favorite albums or something like that? And the person gives an answer like, I don't know, or they say one thing. Then you have other people that just give you the meat where it's like, all right, boom, and they drop like seven albums. Because I was the kid that would, when they would answer that question, I had the notepad out and I would write those seven albums down. I'm like, I'm going to find those and I'm going to listen to those. Sure. And it, I guess it's it's important to remember that you got to give people meat. And sincerity, I think, for me is kind of the key. Um, because there are interviews that I've, I've read and heard where you hear the same canned answers over and over and over again. And it starts to get really, really old. Um, and I know some of that is is the onus of the, the onus is on the interviewer um, to ask the right question. But I also think that you know, as a creative person, regardless of how many times you might have done that same interview over and over and over again, there's a certain there's a certain uh, there's a certain responsibility that you have to give uh, your listeners and your fans uh, a little bit more than than a predictable answer. You know, there's no one no one in the world has a predictable answer that's that's just inherently true all the time you know every single person especially a creative person is going to have unique circumstances by which they create something or how they react to something or how they feel about something and i feel like for me as 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 um uh, a, a fan of a particular artist or musician, I want to know the nitty gritty. I want to know the specifics of how and why, um, you know, they might have written a certain song or they might have felt about a certain artist that inspired them or whatever it may be. So for me, it's not just about giving them meat, but it's about giving them sincerity as well. Don't you think a lot of that too is the fact that, you know, a lot of these questions that they get asked are across the board questions so they lose you know at a certain point you lose the charm on your answer because you've answered that question 45 times you yeah know, like that's, de that's definitely true i mean I, I both you and i have done I, I assume you've done a you know interviews for content where you've run into that before yeah and i just i noticed that you know like for example like with like celebrities particularly um 
actors and things like that, they have these press days where literally somebody comes in, asks them questions for 25, 30 minutes. Boom. That person leaves the seat. They bring in the next person. They bring in, and the person interviewing is literally just sitting in the seat going from interview to interview. And they're getting, I mean, there's those lame questions that reporters always feel the need to ask. Like, how did you, if you're an actor, how did you get into acting first or band? Like, how did you guys become a band? How many times can somebody answer that question and just care about what they're saying anymore, right? Sure. Well, I mean, I remember, you know, one of the the interviews that I'm proudest of, um, not just doing, but just being able to be a part of in, in general was the, the you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, um, but the interview I did with John McRae from uh, Cake, there was, you know, it, it, it started out that way. You know, it started out with, with him just expecting it to be like any other interview. Um, and so, you know, initially we got a whole bunch of just the, the canned answers that you would expect from, um, you know, a, a person who's literally just fighting their way through yet another list of canned questions. But then we really started to get into the nitty gritty of it. And we started to talk about, you know, things that he was really interested in. And then he discovered that I was a real fan. And only at that point did he, he completely switched his, and it, it wasn't just the answers that changed, but it was his, his demeanor, his, his inflection, every, he just felt more at ease and he felt more comfortable. So I felt like, um, you know, beyond the interview itself, I felt like that was the first time I did a good job of steering an, 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 interview, an interview into a place where the person being interviewed felt like they were comfortable enough to be honest with me. And I feel like that that particular interview gave me a very strong sense of how much responsibility the interviewer has to take that person who's being interviewed and lead them down a path that gets them comfortable. I think there's a certain level of, I mean, I guess the, maybe the problem a lot of, with a lot of these things is uh, there's a lot of reporters out there who are not good at reaching people on a human level. So repeating the answers over or questions over and over again, like if you're acting like a robot, why wouldn't they act like a robot back? Right. And I think that sure. going back to us and how that relates to us, it's not, I don't think our problem is that we're, we're, reacting as robots or anything like that but i think it's that maybe we're not paying attention to how we're being perceived <laughs> and it i mean it's a, it's a weird conversation i feel uncomfortable talking about it even like i feel like there's always this inherent like fear of egotism in talking like something like this and it, it actually makes me uncomfortable i don't know about you but it's like it's a weird experience to talk about these things like sure to to believe that um, people are interested in something like that. So I think it's 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 about building a comfort level, and you know, especially for the types of interviews where you have that type of artist who is literally repeating themselves seventy, eighty times a day, or however many times over the course of a year. Um, that interview gave me a really clear sense of how important it is and how much responsibility the interviewer themselves have in being able to craft and lead an interview in the direction that both the interviewer and the interviewee wants to go. I wonder how much of that is that these interviewers, that the way that they view their job or their purpose. Um, I feel like there's this, I, I think about this, like, okay, you're an interviewer. How many people that are actually interviewers are doing interviews Number one, with people they want to do. And number two, that actually want to be interviewers. And how many of them are just trying to climb up some kind of ladder to, I don't know, fame or whatever they're trying to attain in their own personal 
goal. Um, and, and so they just give these horrible interviews because they're not really engaged either. They don't care. Sure. And I, I'm sure we both run into that. My sister is um, also in media. Um, she works for Bloomberg and she's, uh, you know, co co or guest hosting um, a show on uh, MSNBC as well as on Bloomberg. And I, I remember at some point talking to her about this and and hearing her reaction to that, you know, and 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 seeing that, you know, in the journalism industry, the ones the, 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 the journalists that are the most successful are the ones that treat um, every story or every interview like it's the best one they've ever done versus the the one that will get them to the next one. Um, so I feel like there's it depends on on how much you care about your craft versus how much you care about your career. Um, and I know that they should be one and the same in a lot of senses, but I think for for many journalists that isn't necessarily the case. Right. I think that's why Barbara Walters has had such a successful career is because she likes doing interviews. She likes talking to people. She likes getting to the heart of what um, and finding things that people haven't talked to them about before, too. And I think that that's an that's an important component because both sides in order for in order for an interview to go well, both sides need to be engaged. You can have a good interview and a bad interviewee, which apparently Harrison Ford is. And <laughs> you can be the other way around. You can be like a great person being interviewed by somebody who doesn't care about your answers. Sure. And I imagine, you know, for, for like the press junkets that you were talking about for, you know, some stars, for example, that sit in a room and, and have a hundred people go in and out, um, talking to them on, on, you know, a standard press junket for a movie, for example, I imagine that it's almost at some point you just become as an interviewee, you become desensitized to the process and you just stop, you just stop using your brain and it all just becomes, you know, reptilian, um, in its, in, in your responses. Like it's, it's just all automatic response. Right. And I think that's why sometimes you see like these bigger people, like they really get a kick out of doing an interview for like some uh, quote unquote insignificant publication, because to the person that's doing the interview, it's not an insignificant publication. They're sure. stoked to be getting this interview and they're, you know, like they're in it and that's got to bring, that's got to bring the interviewee to life too. You know, like to do like if you're say Kanye West, right. And some kid in high school wants to do an interview of you. You know the kid's going to lose his mind, but he's going to be into the interview. He's engaged. He has questions he really wants answers to. And maybe for somebody like Kanye, who's probably been through more press junkets than we can imagine, uh, mm -hmm. maybe that invigorates you. Sure. I think that there's there's a certain sense of relatability that, that comes across in that because, I mean, at least for good artists, we all uh, I can't even I can't even say we because I don't even consider myself a creative person at the moment. But I think for artists, there's there's a certain sense of, of relatability, like, a, you know, because artists by nature have to be so much more in touch with certain parts of their artistic and, and emotional selves. You know, I think I think artists by nature are a little more nostalgic. Um, and so because of that, we remember those moments in which we heard our favorite band for the first time, read that book that changed, you know, our perceptions of, of, of our creative selves or our lives in general. And so because of that, when we do, you know, take these certain steps, um, towards meeting or interviewing or, or working with the artists that we've always known and loved, there's a certain sense of hero worship that, that works both ways. Um, in the sense that, you know, obviously for that 16 year old kid who, who is picking up his guitar for the first time. Um, after meeting Dave Grohl for Dave Grohl himself, there's probably a sense of, you know, I, I, I remember what it was like to be that kid and I want to give that kid something he'll remember for the rest of his life, you know? Right. You know, all, all, all artists at one point, actually not even at one point, all artists are fans themselves. Yeah. You know, 
there's uh, David Bowie had people that he loved and that, you know, mm-hmm. like blew his mind, like Bob Dylan being one of them. And Bob Dylan had his <laughs> and, and sure. And the people that Bob Dylan loved and listened to had theirs. And it all goes back. It, it's that's the beautiful thing I think about art is it's like a chain of inspiration. And what's really magical to me, I don't know if you ever knew this um, story, but like there was a time where the Beatles and Bob Dylan had like this thing where the Beatles would do something and then they would inspire Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan would do something that would inspire them. And it kept going back and forth between the two of them. And that chain just between the two of them, which I guess isn't even a chain, that interaction between the two of them musically is responsible for some of the greatest music that both artists made at that time. Wow. That's interesting. No, I, I did not know that. Um, what do you know? What album that was for uh, each respective artist? No, I don't unfortunately, but I know that um, a lot of the reason that John Lennon started trying to write more intelligent lyrics was because he was listening to Bob Dylan. Oh, that makes sense. Or he was like, Whoa, you can do that because nobody had really done that before. I think that's something about Bob Dylan that a, a lot of people don't know is Bob Dylan's huge influence on the music industry was that he did things that people hadn't done before, which was write very, very literate lyrics. Like mm-hmm. up until that, I mean, think about what the Beatles were doing before that. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> it's funny. That song immediately popped to mind when you said, that. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it's about as, it's about as sunshine and roses as you can get for a song. But then, Look at Norwegian Wood. It's yeah, about yeah, that's true. Getting drunk in a bathtub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so interesting. Huge difference in in lyrical scope there. I mean, obviously, it's it's not on the level of Bob Dylan because Bob Dylan's are like epic poems, but he proved that you could do something different. And I think that that's maybe the heart of this whole thing that we're getting at right here is maybe we're. What we are failing to see is that it's possible that us talking about certain things can influence other people to do things. And it's a valuable thing to pay attention to because anytime you put yourself in a public place, even as small a public place as we are in, um, I think that we have to remember that people are listening. So I think sometimes that's, that's a hard thing to remember, actually. You know, I think for me... And I, I would like you to answer this as well. Sometimes I, when we sit down to do this, all I'm thinking about is I'm talking to Lamb. I'm not really thinking about the fact that anybody's listening to this. Um, yeah, I think I think because I come I come from more of a a, a showman perspective. You know, I, you know, almost everything that I've done throughout my life, whether it's musical performance or writing or or you know, even stuff in high school like speech and debate and all that kind of stuff. Like I've always been. I've always had a performer's mentality, so I still do understand um, that we are we're talking to an audience, and I still do feel like I'm not just talking to you, but I'm talking to to the world at large. Um, the the one difference, um, at least in the way that I approach the communication um, the, the, between you versus the world, is I don't think I'd elaborate as much if it were just you and the reason being that you've known me for so long and we've had so many conversations that are there there are certain assumptions that i i think that i i make about how we communicate 
Um, so I definitely feel like I elaborate a little bit more, but overall, I think once I get into a certain groove with you on the podcast, I don't really think about, about how I'm saying things to an audience anymore. And I feel like because of how we are as people, I mean, I, I, I consider us to be rel- relatively eloquent people. So I think we, we speak from a place of, of, of intelligence anyway. Um, so I think for the most part, we're okay on that front, but yeah, I, I, I have my, I have my moments where I definitely realize that we're talking to an audience um, versus, you know, a conversation with you. Um, as for jumping into the podcast, every single time we sit down to do this, I think because we deal with so much technical stuff that we, we're not, we're still not quite familiar with. Um, you know, for most people, it's going to be pretty transparent on the show, but we're, we're dealing with some crazy internet and mic problems, uh, for this particular show. Um, but I feel like I'm so wrapped up in those things that I really don't think about the audience. I'm just really literally trying to get to a point where I can record comfortably, you know? Yeah. On episodes like this, it's, I mean, we've, we've had an episode like this one once before and to, like you said, to elaborate more for the audience, uh, essentially what happens is lamb and I record for about approximately 11 minutes and then lamb's voice turns into a robot that you guys can't understand. So then I have to stop him and then. We have to try to figure out what the problem is, and then Lamb has to try to remember what he was saying and hope that he can say it relatively close to the intention of what he meant originally. And then we go for about 11 minutes, and then it happens again. Um, Right now, we're in recording session number three. Speaking of which, though, um, it almost that that almost sounds like good fodder for a short story, too. Like I'm time jumping every 11 minutes. That's kind of cool. It's something slowly sucking you away every 11 minutes. Yeah, it is actually... It's 11 to 12 minutes. It's weird. It's like the exact. Actually, where are we at? Right. Oh, we're in trouble. We're at 1136 right now. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I tried something different on, on this particular recording session. So I switched channels on my router um, when I was doing the restart on my computer. So hopefully switching channels made it so that it, it would not um, jump at, or kill itself at 12 minutes, basically. Yeah, and I would suspect that from the sound of what I was hearing, I think you you heard a little bit in what I sent you. It, it's a signal crossover of some sort. Yeah, it sounds about right. You've got some sort of interference on that channel. Well, anyways, now that you guys have heard a whole bunch of stuff that maybe is not <laughs> as interesting as you had hoped when you tuned in, we will move into the even more exciting world of whatever we feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking speaking of weird collabos um, and and fans who are fans, um, you know it's funny. I, I remember talking to um, my friend Melissa, who who works down in LA, and she's a um, you know she's an agent for um, a fairly large agency out there. So she has a you know the the chance to go to some pretty interesting parties and meet up with some some cool musicians and stuff like that, and. It's always cool because she's a huge music fan, um, so she goes to all of the underground shows and all the the big shows as well, but she gets um, a lot more access than your typical person. And she says she loves going to those shows and seeing, um, I think there was a a Radiohead show six years ago or something like that where um, Katy Perry, Madonna, Prince, Dave Grohl, and one other huge person, I don't remember who it was, were all standing in the audience just like fan, like any other fan listening to you know one of their hero bands, which was Radiohead. And I always find that to be really, really fascinating. And I, fascinating. Um, and I always forget that in order to be a really, really good artist, you have to be a fan of art. And and it's hard for for me to to really get a sense of that, just because these people. I it, it's weird for me to to think, for example, that. Um, you know, Dave Grohl is sitting there with a, a, a pair of headphones listening to, to, to 
Sia at the same time that Sia might be listening to him. You know what I mean? It's very strange to me, but I think it's a really cool idea. I think it's absolutely fascinating to me to think about. I think that's what going back to the meat thing. That's why I always want to know what people are into that I'm into because I want to know what they're nerding out on because yeah. I know I'm nerding out on something and sometimes it's them <laughs> and I want to know what they're into. I mean, that's I, I was always that was more than anything. What I would listen to for in interviews was to find mm-hmm. out what they were into because I wanted to trace it back, you know, like almost like there was like some biological ancestor of you know of an art that you could <laughs> okay you follow this guy back and this guy back and then eventually we all end up at this one artist and to some degree that's got to be true at least with music right i mean like when they talk about rock and roll like if you trace everything back you kind of end up at robert johnson uh, yeah definitely i find that to to be pretty fascinating myself and how how many of those roots go back to sources that we wouldn't anticipate you know things that have even nothing to do with the genre like when you know when 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 jazz and blues were starting to really grow into what what they are in modern day and how much of that might have influenced rock and roll as well you know it's just it's an incredible i love all of those books i don't know i know you're a music nerd like i am did you ever read all of those books? Just like pick up every book, like, oh, there's the history of this, the history of this, and just and just devour them. Yeah, I was and I was a huge music magazine guy too. So I mean, you know, back in the day when when Rolling Stone and Reagan like Rolling Stone and Reagan were essentially constantly, you know, in in a backpack of mine when I headed to school. Like I always, always, always delved deep into to both of those. Um just because I mean for, for you know, as as a young budding musician at the time. I was always so interested, not just fascinated, but interested. I, I think fascinated is the wrong word because there's, when you're talking about fascination, there's almost a sense of of, of wonder um, that goes along with it. For me, it was just trying to find better ways to work as a musician and better ways to become a better musician. So I wanted every last morsel of information that I could pertaining to how an artist would get to a certain point or how they wrote songs or how they they learned their instruments or how often they practiced. All that stuff was really, really fascinating to me. Um, you know, it was important for me to know those things as a young artist. Yeah, I think that that's something that's perhaps understated. Um when you are at the developmental phase, and sometimes it continues for a very long time, you're not obviously comfortable with your own talents and your own abilities. So we're always looking to that dissect the way that other people work, hoping that there's like some kind of magic formula that we can tap into, right? Like, sure. why, why can't I write OK Computer? Well, maybe if I know exactly how they did it, there's something in there that if I can tap into that, then all of a sudden I'm writing stuff like that. And in the long run, I think as we grow as artists and as as, uh, adults, what we learn is the thing that you tap into is yourself. Sure. And there is no consistency across the board except for the fact that, like we said, artists are fans themselves. They nerd out on what they're going to nerd out on, and they put a lot of work into things. You know, it's it's funny that you that that last sentence was what it was, because I, I actually wanted to ask you about that yesterday. I, I don't know why I didn't end up doing it. I think it's because you left before I could or um, because I broke your gun. Yeah. Oh, man, that thing is still in shambles. It's <laughs> it's in huge. I, I attempted to try to put it together again this morning. It's just it's it's done. Um, but I, I remember wanting to ask you um if that lesson is now something that you've taken to heart in your current life, and if you, it basically took you the last, you know, 35 years of your life to get to the point where you realize that it's about 
carving your own version of art into the world. Yeah, I think that it's a it's one of those lessons for me that I continually have to remind myself of. And I think that's normal. You know, you go through these phases where you're like, all right, I know what I'm doing. But then you start to get um, things get stale when you're too sure. into yourself about it. All right. <laughs> And I don't mean in, in yourself in the ego way, but I mean like trapped within yourself. Um, sure, you need to you you need to keep dipping the pen back in the ink. You need to keep going back to that inspiration. And if I don't do that often enough, and I don't find some new, you know, like my 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 writing was getting a little stale, and then I discovered Murakami, and then boom, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I was fascinated by Murakami, and I got into like mini versions of what we're talking about in life but a mini version of me looking at Murakami and slowly trying to dissect it. And then, boom, okay, back to me, back to me. But now that's become part of me. And then I find Proust, and then I do the same thing with Proust, and then that becomes a part of me. And I think that that's perhaps part of the equation that I never expected, um, is that it's a it's a continual process of assimilation. But the pro- the purpose of the assimilation is to become more you by taking little pieces and assimilating that into your identity as an artist. You're slowly allowing yourself more tools to say what it is that you need to say. And without the tools, you you couldn't do it. That's crazy that you've got Murakami and Proust <laughs> as your two cornerstone influences right now. That's a pretty heavy set of influences. <laughs> That's and you wonder why I can never finish the novel. <laughs> yeah, geez, just Murakami alone. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. Like Proust is Proust, and and for him, he's he's a he's an exercise in form in a lot of ways. But Murakami, it's it's hard to describe Murakami in the same way it's hard to describe Proust. In that Murakami is just there's a density to his work that is just that is just it's hard to really quite understand on your first read. Uh, you almost have to mentally and emotionally prepare yourself to consume it properly. And it goes back to the thing that we we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is I feel like Murakami more than most, you have to read multiple times and maybe even multiple times in rapid succession. Like, you know, for some books, I may I may read them, um, you know, years apart from each other uh, for my first and second readings. But Murakami, I feel like I have to read the same page like four or five times in order to really grasp what's being said. And I think there's also, a, for us, it's there's a little difficulty in reading Murakami in the sense that there are things that are inherently Japanese, that um, yeah. ja- Japanese people inherently understand about their own culture, obviously, that we are breezing right over because we don't know anything about it. Sure. For example, like in the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, I don't want to go too deep into this, so don't worry, guys. Um, he talks about how the main character is... Um, cooking himself food and ironing he irons clothes when he's nervous and i just i i when i read it i read those as quirks what i didn't realize at the time of my first reading was that for the most part within japanese culture that was um his way of emasculating the character that yeah that there's still a very um male female role driven society at least from what i've read it's not from my own experience obviously and the point of that was that he was doing quote unquote woman's work. Sure. If you care about a piece of art, it's important to do research. Like I I have a I don't know if you've ever done this. When you finish a book, go online and hunt down essays written about that book after you finish it and just hear what other people thought of it. Oh sure. And I, I, I think I do that more more 
rapidly with poets as well. Um, I remember a very similar situation to your Murakami, your Murakami situation in that I really like Pablo Neruda, um, but Pablo Neruda is very different um, culturally than anything that I, I practically understand. Plus, especially with poets, I, I, I typically find myself in two camps of poets. Um, I either like the the, the harsh, stark, Bukowski-like poets that are basically ripping through their emotional present, um, or the, the the sweeping, more old-school poets like you know Emerson or Eliot. Um, so someone like Pablo Neruda, who is more, who is kind of a weird combination of the two, with a cultural bias that I don't particularly understand, makes it so that I just the 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 quest to find what other people thought of it is almost as interesting as the work itself. Um, and so yeah, I find myself diving into deep rabbit holes when when I'm reading certain certain you know certain authors. The thing that's always um, that always makes me. I don't know. I, I obsess over the idea of reading artists, uh, reading poets in particular that are in translation, because I know that, um, like for example, with Pablo Pablo Neruda, there's in Spanish a magical, magical music within his words. Sure. And I know that even the best translator has to gut so much of that just to make it make sense to another language. And sure. I wonder. I'm like, what am I? What am I missing in the beauty? I mean, like translated Naruto is beautiful. I can't imagine how beautiful it is in Spanish. Yeah, and I remember the reason why I was even into Naruto in the first place was because when I was with Anna, um, Pablo Naruto was one of her heroes. So I got to hear her read some Pablo Naruto in the original Spanish, and with my broken. Um, rudimentary understanding of Spanish, even even with that level of understanding, I understood how beautiful it was, just in its form and its structure. Um, but yeah, I, I always wonder that about certain artists as well. Like I, you know, anyone who knows me well enough knows that I'm a huge fan of Dostoevsky, and I wonder how much of Dostoevsky I'm losing by reading it in a translation versus the original Russian. It's crazy, right? When you think yeah. about it, I mean, I had a I had a teacher in college who he was a philosophy teacher, and he. Sp- Spoke and read Greek, Latin, German, obviously English, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm oh, and Russian. So he read and spoke all of the major philosophical languages. Jeez, that's that's a that's a lifetime endeavor in and of itself. On top of studying philosophy, oh, good the, God, that's the man madness. Was, he was brilliant, but I mean, sure. and, and his point was, he's like. How can I read a philosophical argument when I'm not reading it in the original tongue? He's like, who knows what I'm missing, what subtleties of that argument I'm missing. And it was, I mean, to be honest, it is a valid point. Uh, not that we all can, you know, bust out Duolingo and learn Russian and read Dostoevsky, but <laughs> it would be nice. It'd be nice if it was the Matrix and we could just stick a little chip in and be like, please teach me Japanese so I can read Murakami in his natural language. Yeah. I mean, considering how stark Murakami is in English, I can't. I can't imagine what he must sound like in Japanese. Can you I ma- really, I really can't. It'd can you, be unbelievable. Can you imagine reading David Foster Wallace in any other language in Eng- than English? Because in, <laughs> in <laughs> English, true. I'm not even sure what I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's utterly incomprehensible. I mean, there's a lot of um, like Heidegger is well known for in his philosophy, reading it in English, these really long epic run on sentences. But I've been told by people who speak German that it's way more clear when you're reading it in German. Sure. 
And I wonder how much of that transcends just that. because I mean, obviously, when it comes to a translation, um, you know, it, it, it very rarely, actually, almost never is it a literal translation. There's always a, a strong sense of interpretation that's coming from the perspective of the translators themselves. Um, and I feel like that's that's almost even more difficult when it comes to things like philosophy, because I mean, I think about, um, I don't know, uh, Nietzsche or, or, or Kierkegaard, and I wonder how much of that is especially something that dense like philosophy like interpretation is so specific to the translator that i wonder how much of the original intention is getting lost in that right i mean yeah we're not even talking about the magic or the um music of the language we're talking about inflection of meanings we're talking about uh we're talking about a field that relies solely upon logistics yeah on, on the way that words are interpreted the way that the word is used if you translate yeah, with yeah. yeah, if you if you choose the wrong word, you know, if you choose happy instead of glad, who knows what the implications of that could be. Sure. It's 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 I have a lot of a lot of respect for anybody who does translations. Especially um literary and philosophical translations. Uh, uh, can you I mean for, especially if you cuz I I imagine for most translators it's not it's not it's it's never it's never a a there's always a sense of love that has to go into the translation itself because, you know, there are some people, for example, I remember hearing about one particular uh, translation of um, Dostoevsky for Crime and Punishment that took almost 18 years um, because the the person who translated it wanted to be true to the original version as much as they could. And so, you know, not only did they, they translate the story for what it was, but they also did cultural research. They did research on him as a man, you know, the time in which the time period in which he, he was 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 writing. I mean, there's so much that went into that translation to try to keep it as true as possible. But even then, you have to account for a certain margin of error, because as much as you may love a piece, you're not the person and you're it's not in their words. You know, so as much as you may care about the piece itself, there's always going to be something that's a little lost in translation, despite the amount of love you put into it. And it must be said that the translators of the world are the unsung heroes of literature. Sure, absolutely. Because imagine how culturally poor we would be if we could only read things that were written in English. We, yeah, or imagine – it's funny because I never think about it going the other way. I think about, you know, what if Maya Angelou can only be read by people who who spoke English? That'd be strange. be awful, awful. Yeah. <laughs> or Mark Twain. Like, imagine if the rest of the world couldn't read Mark Twain. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. Just, it's incredible. I mean, I, it was a rabbit hole that I kind of went down for a little while and just, um, and I probably will end up going down it again. I, I like the idea of when you buy something in translation, um, buying several versions and reading, sure. reading each version, because, sure. uh, there's actually, this is not translation, but it, it, Uh, relates directly to this i have a pocket poet something or other version of walt whitman's leaves of grass Mm, yeah and what's interesting about leaves of grass is walt whitman rewrote leaves of grass i think seven or eight separate times maybe even more um the numbers aren't important but and every time that he would redo it, he'd cut a line, add a line. But there is no definitive version. In every different version that he released, there was something in it that wasn't in the other one. But it wasn't like he was just adding or fixing and editing. He was literally changing. He'd take out a poem, and then that poem will be in this one, but not in this one. But it's in this version and not in this version. He would do the same with words and lines. 
And this pocket version I have is one guy reading all of the different versions of it and going, I prefer this this stanza, but I like this stanza from version three and making his ultimate version like a mishmash, his ultimate version of all the versions of Leaves of Grass. Wow. It's a brilliant undertaking. And I think it's actually, to be honest, it's my favorite version of Leaves of Grass. Wow, that has to be, I, I can't imagine the amount of time that must have taken him. <laughs> and that's that's like going back to exactly what you're saying. It, there has to be a certain amount of love in it. Um, and for example, look at talking about Proust again. Look at Proust. So w- what is the name of that book? Is it In Remembrance of Time Lost? Is it Remembrance mm-hmm. of Lost Time? Is it Remembrance of Time Past? Is it Remembrance of Past Time? Is it In Search of Lost Time? These are all translations of the same title, and that's just yeah, the yeah. title. Yeah. And, but the, the Proust, that's the rabbit hole that I went down was the Proust translation rabbit hole, because uh, the first version of, of Proust that I read was literally the free version that you get in iBooks. That was the first version mm-hmm. I ever read. And I'm sure it wasn't some great literary translator that did it because it's free. It's on. Um, what do they call that? Project Gutenberg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which always makes me think of Steve Gutenberg instead of the guy who invented the book. Um, not invented the book, but first printed the, the book. The printing press? Yeah. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Gutenberg. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. I went to short circuit. Um, uh, and now I'm thinking of Cocoon. Jeez. And if anybody doesn't know what these movies are, you are missing out on some prime 80s cheese. Um, yeah, well, actually, for what they were at the time, they're pretty timeless movies, um, in a sense. True. Um, but, yeah, there's um, Lydia Davis, who is Paul Auster's, the author Paul Auster's wife, who's a mm-hmm. great writer in her own right, has a translation of Swan's Way, which is the first section of In Remembrance of Time Lost. And I've always wanted to buy that one and read that version. And then there are several True. other versions. And I just, I think that... Um, I don't think that's a bad thing to get lost in a book that much that you're going to read different translations of it. Because as I've said, rereading brings a lot of depth. But imagine the depth that perhaps you can find by reading different translations, because now you're seeing it not only from different perspectives of your own, but you're seeing it from different people's perspectives. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I wish I'd prepared a little bit better um, it, it, I, for this conversation. I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but I've read like six different versions of uh, of Crime and Punishment, and they've all been very, very different. So, yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, don't get me wrong. The essence of the story is all essentially there uh, from, from uh, translation to translation. But there are some, for example, that differ in – in, in, in scope by almost 80 pages. Um, and so it's, it's really weird to, to, and, and it's funny because I, I can, I, I'll read the shortest one and the longest one back to back and not really be able to tell the difference in, in where the turns are taken. Um, and I feel like I, unless I read them literally side by side, page by page, I wouldn't be able to tell. That's crazy. That's the beauty of the translator. Uh, Paul Auster though. When I, I used to, ha- when I was in high school, I had such a, I, I had such a love for that guy as an author. Um, and I think it was because I, of how much I liked City of Glass for being as strange as it was when I read it. Um, I think I read it when I was 17 or something like that. And it's, it's definitely a book that, that I wasn't ready to read, but I read it anyway. Um, and it, 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 it gave me, it, it, it put a special place in my heart for Paul Auster. 
Yeah, that whole New York trilogy to me is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I love it. They're all so different, too. I, I, I actually, it's one of the ones where I, I find it to be really important as a writer um, in the sense that I think it opened up a lot of doors um, creatively um, and philosophically for me as a writer. And I think I broadened my scope of what I thought writing could be after having read the New York trilogy. So for any young authors out there, um, I think it's a good idea just to, whether you like it or not, you have to respect how, how, how many twists and turns and how different it is structurally. Um, so I, I, I have, I, I really think that it's, it's a good recommendation to throw up there for any young writer to, to go out and find Paul Auster's New York trilogy and just devour it. Yeah. I've bought, I think I've bought that book for like three people so far and none of them have read it, but, um, <laughs> that's kind of the way it works with buying people books, of but course. you buy somebody a book going, I hope you read this. Um, but the thing about Paul Auster that's really fascinating for people who haven't read him is he is, I mean, there's, there's a certain level of absurdity at the core of each story, but then mm-hmm. it's also mm-hmm. done in such a stark meat and potatoes manner that it's very unique because usually when you have something absurd, you have some strange thing going on in a story the writing is strange and it's, you know, there's like some magical or mysticism in the writing or something like this, but this is like, I mean, the New York trilogy is a good way to describe it. Cause it's just like, it's very New York. It's just very, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I'm getting metaphorical, but it's very concrete and right angles and, uh, baseball. But then it's also <laughs> weird. It's very That's actually a great way to describe it. it. It is very baseball. When I think of Paul Oster, I think of I think of a guy from the Bronx who's been living in the Bronx for the last fifty years, who has been devouring books for fifty years, who just happens to be part of something very very strange. It's from his perspective, you know. And I think that it's 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 actually kind of a testament to to how how sharply Oster keeps that perspective through the entire New York trilogy. I think it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And and what's interesting is when I read the New York trilogy, I wasn't aware that those were three novellas that were written separately. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought it was one book. So I was finding threads that connected the three stories that weren't even really intended because I I was assuming that there was some kind of connection, which is uh, Kind of an interesting idea, too, that the way something's presented to you can completely change the way that you perceive it. It's funny because I to, just to, to go along with your point, I had the opposite situation where I read them completely independent of each other and had no idea that they related until I read the last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I read City of Glass, I thought City of Glass was going to be a, a standalone because it was so strange. Um and and then, you know, reading the other parts of the New York trilogy, at some point I had the light bulb moment because I read them pretty far apart, too. Um, I think I read the first one um, when I was 16 and then the last one when I was when I was 21. So there was a huge gap of time in there. Um, and I didn't really quite understand that they related until the very, very end. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, it was, it was nice, actually. It's It's like watching Star Wars. Um, not having any idea that all three of those movies are related. It's a nice little shock at the end, right? Yeah, it's great. Um, I think, I guess um, we have a lot of people that listen for our tech banter. So I guess maybe we should hit some of that before we shoot this thing in the foot, right? So how uh, far along are you in workflow these days? The process of transfer is time consuming and it's not because of workflow. It's just (laughs) 
moving things over, I have um, delved deeper into our issue of, you know, what am I going to do with um, photos and what am I going to do with, you know, think because workflow, only, you can only put text in it. And what I've kind of, I've, I've gone through a lot of things. Um, and I, I don't mean like systematically. I mean, I've just like played around with the idea for a few days and then looked at another thing. Uh, basically what I'm doing so far, and there's a complexity to this that bothers me, but I think that once I know it, it'll be fine. Anything that's like a personal file, you know, like a Word document or something like that, that's personal related to the vlog or related to this podcast. I'm just throwing that in a Dropbox. Mm-hmm. That just seems like the logical place for me to have that. I would love to have all of my work-related stuff in Dropbox as well, but um, a lot of the people that I work with use Drive, so I have to have all my work stuff in Drive. So now ah. that's all the work stuff's in Drive. Finances, all my finance stuff, I think I'm going to put that in Drive too because it feels like that those are related in some way. Sure. Work and finance. Uh, photos. So far... I haven't really got into a lot. Um, I've just reduced as many images as I possibly can. But the things that have images, I think what I'm going to do, I haven't done anything with them yet. I think I'm going to drop them into Google Photos. and just Really? Yeah, and just pull links out and throw those links into Workflowy. Um, I've been been doing that with uh, Dropbox. Have you tried that? The problem with Dropbox is all you're going to be able to search for is the title of that image. That's true. Whereas Google Drive, they have this thing that, like, the algorithm can tell what's in the photo. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not a hundred percent, but because I mean, imagine, imagine the algorithm that's behind that. It's just epic that it even works ten <laughs> percent of the time. That undertaking is amazing, and the fact that it works as well as it does says a lot about Google. That I can type the word "cat" in, and it literally pulls up pictures that i have that have cats in them and sometimes things that are not cats but it's it's pretty incredible so i feel like investing in that for the images is probably in the long run going to suit me best for sure. finding the things i need um, but i'm just reducing images a lot and then i've actually thrown a few things back into evernote because there are certain huh. things even though um actually i i misspoke i did i changed my mind about finances i did not put the finances in in drive. I put them in Evernote. Um, be- gotcha. okay. because that seemed like a more logical place. Cause I, what I did is I thought about it. I'm like, Oh, I'm taking, I need to save receipts. Um, so what's the best way to save receipts? Oh, Evernote has that built in thing to take a picture of something. And then it has opt, uh, optical character recognition. Okay. That seems like a good place to take pictures of receipts. Fine. I'll put all the finances stuff in here. And then just everything else, all the like the bulk of what I really need, all the commonplace stuff, you know, like what books, uh, my notes on books and movies and all of, all of the stuff that I'm searching on a regular basis, that's what's going in Workflowy. That's going to sure. be my database. Everything else is just storage. And I guess that's the best way to, to describe what I've done is I've just moved storage things to storage and moved my database into something that works better as a database. What have you been doing? Um, I actually dove into a more entertainment related uh, because I, I've been I'm kind of frustrated with how TV works in my life. Um, I have my regular TV, which is through AT&T Um I also have 
Netflix and I have my Chromecast and I have my old version of my Apple TV. Um, and yesterday, um, and it's rare that it's rare that Colin um, is really that into anything tech related. But Colin was so fascinated by his new Apple TV that he gave myself, Teddy, and Brandon a tour of the Apple TV that the, the latest version of Apple TV. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, it's one of the coolest things I've seen. Um, if Siri could work half as well on my phone as it did with Apple TV, I would probably use Siri again, um, considering how how. I, I, and it's kind of frustrating for me from an Apple perspective in the sense that I know that all of these teams have to work independently because the company's too big and there's too much product. But I wish that there was a way for the teams to cross-pollinate well enough so that the same level of functionality existed between all of the different versions of even the same product, like Siri, for example. Siri exists on every version of, of, of a device that they have, but Siri works better in certain environments than others. And I'm not sure if that's a development thing or if it's a team thing, but... On Apple TV, Siri is actually useful, and it's pretty fascinating to see how Siri works. Um, the example that Colin gave us was, you know, he pulled up a TV show, and then he, you know, he turned the volume almost all the way down, and he basically tapped um, his his remote and said, "Hey ter- Siri, what did they just say?" And so Siri rewinded to you know 30 seconds back, and then played closed captioning for that 30 seconds only. And then went back to the original version of the show again. I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah, it's it's, it's a brilliant feature. Um, my experience with the new Apple TV, I love it. First of all, I do love it. It works fantastic. I don't use half the features that, that I thought I would, though. That feature, mm-hmm. I've never actually used it in a real world thing. I don't know why. Um, I also, for some reason, I forget to use the app switcher all the time. So I just back out to the menu all the time. <laughs> it's 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 really I don't know if it's just years of training using things you know like I had the Roku and I had the older Apple TV it's just years of muscle memory of doing that sure the one thing that I do find frustrating and to clarify a point uh Siri is not, Siri's not on any of the desktops yet mm-hmm. that's coming True. this year um mm-hmm. the one thing that is frustrating in the long run about the Apple TV and Siri uh, I'm sorry but the Siri button is stupid. It, yeah, it's really it's a pain in the butt. That first of all, that remote I lose it all of the time, all of the time. I have to like I literally had to train myself like this is where I put it. I put it nowhere else. It must always be in this spot because when you need to do one of those features, you got to go find the remote. And if I could just say to the Apple TV, "Hey Siri, what did they say?" and not have to pick up the remote, now we're talking some magic. Sure. I wonder why that hasn't happened yet. The technology is definitely available to make that happen. I don't know. I I think they're dropping the ball with this right now. I mean, everybody else is just kicking their butt so much on on the voice assistance. And, you know, I here's what I don't I don't understand. Okay, first of all, I'm still baffled by the fact that they've waited this long to put Siri on the desktop. It's just a strange choice, but apparently it's coming. So here's say I have my computer here that has siri on it i have my watch that technically has um siri that's been beaten the head with a hammer 25 times um i have my phone (laughs) which has siri i have i don't have some people have an ipad that has siri and then if the apple tv had like a full siri right why Mm -hmm. can't those devices all know that each other is in the room and work as one giant microphone relay so that 
Sure. When I'm st- when I'm standing closer to the the, the iPad, it's going to pick that up, you know, and and like use that as a microphone relay so that when I'm in the room with my devices, I say, "Hey Siri," and instead of Siri waking up on all my devices as separate instances of Siri, it's all one instance of Siri. And sure. it picks the biggest device, you know, whatever. So if I'm in the room with all the devices I described and I say, hey, Siri, and my TV's on, it understands. Let's let's display what he wants on the TV, because that's the biggest display that's available to him right now. That's active. And even to, to take it a step further, even you could say something to Siri like, um, hey, Siri, let's store that article for later. Can you send that to my iPhone? And then, you know, it sends you a link to it on your iPhone or hey, Siri. Um, let's continue to watch this movie, uh, but let's throw up the director's bio on my laptop so I can take a look at it. You know, just something like something that cross pollinates all of the different devices and makes the environment more useful, um, and more logical in that way. Right. As if all of these different devices are just extensions of each other. Or just uh, how about even killing the Siri name too? Just like, Hey, iPad. And then the iPad knows I'm talking to the iPad. Yeah. I mean, that makes, or Hey TV. You know, like, cool, because maybe I do want to do different things on different devices at the same time, you know, and like be able to do what you're saying. Like, hey, iPad, can you send this to phone to iPhone? Oh, I would love that so much. I would love that so much. And I think I, that's I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm so used to doing all this stuff tactile, like, like from a tactile perspective that I don't really care that much. It would just make my life so much easier without having to carry four different devices around. I would just talk to my devices. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm the same way. I'm not crazy about using my voice to do things, but if it worked the way I just described, that would change everything for me because I would understand. I think that the reason that the voice thing is so difficult to me is because there's so much fighting to get it to work the way you want. And I know that there's, there's a lot of talk about this company that Apple bought, um, for voice command. And apparently it's going to make Siri amazing and completely, uh, contextually aware and that you won't have to use the exact command to get it to do things that it'll understand what you're saying. Uh, and the, that's a big part of it. But what we're talking about is another big part that is not really being handled by anybody yet, which is inner device yeah. communication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when that starts happening, we're talking about being able to do some really useful things. Yeah. And I, I, I'm shocked that I, I have a feeling this is probably happening in the background, and I assume that the company's probably the the company that's probably spearheading this the most is Amazon. But I can't wait for that day. I just can't wait for the day when all of my devices they just exist in the same ecosystem, and I and one one device is just a miniaturized version of the other. So when I pick up my phone out of its cradle, for example. Um, which I haven't had to touch in six hours because I can do everything I need to do on my phone, on my TV, and on my computer, um, that it has all of the changes I've made, all the things that I've looked at, all the things that I'm interested in that I've been looking at on my laptop and my TV on my phone already. That would be amazing. Right. And, I mean, think about the solution to my my problem with the the Apple remote. I'm losing it all the time. i got to push the button to talk to Siri. I have something on my wrist that's supposed to do those things. Why sure. why can't I ask my watch to play the next episode of Arrow? That doesn't seem mm-hmm. completely illogical and it doesn't seem beyond the limits of what technology is capable of at this moment. Sure. Uh, well, I don't know. We'll see what happens. It, there's so much going on. 
Um, what email? Are you still working with Spark, man? Yeah, I still am. Um, I, I, you know, just out of sheer convenience, I've been using the native app um, because I'm, I'm handling so many different email accounts. And I, that's the one thing that I will say Spark is not great at is handling multiple accounts. Um, but, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't want complexity anymore. I mean, as much as I like the way that uh, the, like the way Spark organizes my inbox without me having to do anything at this point, there are times where I just literally want to look at my messages in chronological order, um, without having to tap again in order to get to that version of the interface. So I've been using the native app. I mean, technology wise, the last couple of weeks I've actually been relatively boring. Um, I've just dove more into, um, strangely musical collaborations so i've been i've been heavily into that the last couple of weeks and i've kind of left technology to the wayside yeah i um when i was using spark i wasn't a big fan of the separating my stuff i just wanted to see it all together because i'm an inbox zero person so those things don't matter to me um but i've been using the apple mail app myself the built-in one and i've kind of figured out you know even though i've always said it bothers me that there's no snooze I've mm-hmm. kind of figured out my little system and it's using red and unread. Yeah, same here. I've, I've been doing that too as well. So I, I think for almost all the native mail apps or I'm sorry, not all the native mail apps, but all the mail clients, it's just trying to figure out um, because they're, it's a relatively easy concept when it comes to email. It's just trying to figure out which system has the right tools for what you want to set up. And I think, you know, because the the native mail app is already built into the phone itself, um, I have just learned how to make it work for me. Um, even though it's not the best, it's also not the worst, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, a bad enough set of problems that I will go out and hunt for a new client and then completely learn how to use a new client from the ground up. I just don't want to do that. Right. Well, I think that what we what we're learning in the long run is that perhaps, um, some of the feature bareness that Apple provides in its apps in the long run is perhaps beneficial. Yeah, I think I think both you and I go through that. You know, we we find these complex tools and we end up just using the simplest version of those tools in the long run anyway, even though we do dabble in all of these other complicated versions. I mean, yeah, look at our favorite thing right now, Workflowy. Workflowy is about as basic as it gets. And I love it. Yeah, I work flowy though. I love how easy it is. I love how easy it is. I I, I just like looking at it because it's just so simple. <laughs> it's so cool. The search is just, I mean, it, it blows my mind that I'm like, why didn't anybody ever think of like having the search results come up like this? It's so useful. And to contain things like I contain that I'm pulling up search and needing context all the time, the amount of time that it saves me is going to, it makes all of the other stuff that I was talking about, like the complexity, I have to remember, you know, like work stuff goes here and finances go here. All of that stuff, which will become routine after time because I just know that, oh, I need work stuff, go to drive. Um, All of the work that needs to be put into that, I'm going to get all of that time back plus more just with what search gives me and the time it saves. Yeah, and you're right. I I don't quite understand why no one um, no one thought context was important until to workflow. It's not like no one thought it was important, but no one has set it up so that you can see such a, 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 a deep chain of context like Workflowy. And I think that that's really amazing. 
It's, I mean, it's, it's one of the apps that I'm like, well, why is this in no tech blogs are talking about this? And it's because it's not flashy. Yeah, definitely true. I think that that's the one thing that we have in this show that is unique to any other show, at least as far as when we talk about tech that we do that nobody else seems to be doing. All of our stuff, all of our problems, all of our thoughts are based in a practicality and a function. Mm-hmm. And you and I, we're interested in Flash, but we, we're very cynical of Flash. Whereas all everybody else is like, oh, VR and all this other. I don't care about VR. If it gets to a point where it's useful and it saves me time, now you've got my attention. Because for me, technology is about productivity. And, you know, I think that's where we differ a lot from uh, a lot of the podcasts that I've listened to about tech is that we're inherently tech guys. Um, We just need our tech to do things for our other things, you know, so the tech itself can't stand in the way of that. So for us, for example, we're not a we're not an app review podcast. We just have apps that we need in order to try to achieve certain other things in our lives. So from a, a pragmatic standpoint, I think that our opinions on Things like tech are so much more ground in a place of simplicity and ease that I, I think for most people, they're, they're a little more useful. I mean, they, you know, a lot of the people I know who listen to tech uh, podcasts or read tech blogs are tech people who sit around and mess with apps all day. But I don't I don't do that. I just and I don't want to do that. That's never that's never been a goal of mine. You know, um, I, and it's funny because at some point in my life, I was really a strong tech guy. But at this point, I just want my tech to work so I can do other things. So for me, it's, it's about, it's about making sure that something functions properly and something is easy to use, you know? Yeah. I think like once a week I go through the home screen on my, uh, my phone because I have all my apps on one screen. I don't do the page flipping stuff. It's just a waste of time. Uh, I go through it and go, all right, what can I get rid of? And I'm always just looking for something I can delete because (laughs) when it gets to a point where I don't have any folders, then I'll be a happy camper. (laughs) 